1: And tonight on the CNBC special hour, the world on edge as a growing energy crisis in Europe shakes global markets. With Russia launching another salvo in its growing energy fight with the West. Stocks fall again as oil stays high and OPEC actually cuts production tonight. We are drilling down the moves of the day, what it means for your money and for America ahead. You're going to hear from some of the biggest players in the business, including the CEOs of America's largest natural gas producer, EQT as well as the CEO of Utility, AEP, on how to make sure that your electric gig will hold up for years to come. Plus, energy analyst Rusty Brazil on America's role in helping Europe, and OPEC global oil expert, Lee McCroft, on what the group is thinking right now. All right, welcome everybody to this CNBC special energy emergency. I am Brian Sullivan. Jim is off tonight and all week. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, if you think that Europe's energy crisis could not get more chaotic or maybe even more confusing, there's a lot going on. Think again. There have been a flurry of headlines and new comments in just the last 48 hours that add even more layers to that story. First, Putin launching another salvo in his energy war with Europe. He is cutting off all natural gas flows from the Nord Stream pipeline from Russia into Germany until the Western sanctions on his oil end. Keep in mind, There is not only no timeline for those sanctions to end, but more stringent sanctions on Russian oil are set to go in force on December 5th. European spot natural gas prices have come down a little bit in the last couple of days, but they're up more than 1,600 percent over just two years. And electricity prices across much of Europe are at record highs, in some cases 10 times what we are paying here in America. Headline number two, OPEC and Russia agreeing to effectively cut oil production by 100,000 barrels a day beginning next month. This is something that we reported may happen just over a week ago here on CNBC. OPEC saying they are worried about global demand slowing down in the months ahead. And story three, and this is a big one, it's not getting a lot of attention, but it should. Could the energy crisis turn into a financial or even a banking problem? Listen to this. An executive at Equinor, the massive Norwegian energy company formerly known as Statoil, one of the biggest in the world saying as much as $1.5 trillion worth of margin calls over energy trading could require some kind of backstop or maybe even bailout or energy trading itself may be at risk globally. By the way, that $1.5 trillion would be on top of what Goldman Sachs says could be an additional $2 trillion in higher energy bills this winter for European families. All this the new prime minister of the UK says they may have to spend about $200 billion to help cover energy bills for their growing, nervous population and their industry. So let's try to figure out how this all plays out. Joining us now is somebody who puts it together better than anybody. And that is Halima Croft, Global Head of Commodity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets and a CNBC contributor. Halima, we try to touch on just a little bit of what's going on there. We could probably do the whole show on just laying out the events of the last couple of weeks. From where you see it, and your research is must-read on Wall Street, Where do we stand right now?
2: I mean, I think we're in this situation with Russia right now where we just don't know how far they're going to go in terms of weaponizing energy. They've basically said, as you said, no gas through Nord Stream 1. Are they going to cut off Turk Stream? Are they going to basically suspend all gas through Ukraine? Are they going to take Europe to zero? And the Europeans have been very clear they've built storage, they're building out infrastructure. But if we get a very cold winter in Europe, I don't see how we're not going to get through this without major industrial curtailments, rationing. It's going to be very, very expensive in terms of what governments are going to have to pay to keep their populations at all satisfied with energy prices.
1: And this is an incredibly important point that you're making. And I want to highlight for our audience that is sort of maybe following the story. They know a little bit about it but they don't really understand where we stand. They they hear that, okay, German storage is at 85%, and that is good news. But here's the issue. Germany has never existed through a winter on storage alone. They tend to draw their storage down, do they not, even with additional flows?
2: Absolutely, and again, they've gotten to 85% because Russian gas was flowing up till, you know, a couple months ago. Brian, this may not be a crisis just for this winter, this could be a multi winter crisis, because if there is no gas going forward, Europe is going to have a huge supply problem going forward, even with this infrastructure buildup. Because, again, there's not a lot of additional gas in this system. I was just in Norway. The Norwegians have really raised their oil and gas production by close to 10 percent. But they are saying we're number one supplier to Europe for now. But we don't know how much more we can do. We're pretty much tapped out. So that is a real challenge is there is just not a lot of additional gas volumes out there.
1: Well, thankfully, the United States has been selling liquefied natural gas. And by the way, the Chinese have probably been reselling some, have they not? I mean, we sell it from Texas. The Chinese take ownership of it. The ship gets halfway across the Pacific. And then somebody in, in the UK and Europe buys it back from the Chinese at some hugely elevated rate because they need the liquefied natural gas. If the Chinese, for some reason, start to get aggressive in buying that gas again and not reselling it, or it right. gets really cold in China, right. again, where they need the energy, or they stop the COVID lockdowns, what then? So,
2: Brian, I mean, this is the big conundrum, is if we have a cold winter, not only in Europe, but in Asia, and they bid away these volumes. I mean, as you know, think about Qatar, huge natural gas supplier. Their volumes are largely under long term contract to Asia. If you have Asia actually entering the spot market and competing yeah. with Europe for volumes, that is only going to make it that much more challenging for Europe to get through winter.
1: Okay, OPEC. Let's talk OPEC yes. because Monday, it was Labor Day here. So they had their yes. meeting. We weren't, I knew you were probably listening in. I was doing the best I could. They effectively cut production by rolling back their quota by 100,000 that they had added a couple of months earlier after the president, President Biden, went there. What is OPEC trying to do? What do you think they're in? Is this just to sort of embarrass, do you think, the United States or do they have a real demand fear scenario that they are confronting?
2: I mean, I think OPEC is back into active market management. I think what they want to do is to signal they're not in cruise control. I mean, this was kind of a micro move. This was not a major move from a physical market standpoint. But what I think is interesting is when you read the statement, they basically said, we don't have to wait 30 days. We can come into this market very quickly to take additional action as needed. So if you're thinking about shorting oil and you have a major move lower or a major event like Iran coming back out of the market, which I still think is going to be very challenging, OPEC is basically ready to go back in quickly and adjust production.
1: Halima Croft, RBC Capital Markets, as we said, laying it out like nobody else can. We really appreciate it, Halima. Thank you very much. Thank all you All right, as having- we mentioned, uh, you're very welcome. As we mentioned, at the top of the hour, the moves in energy playing a role in the macro markets and your money recently. Russia's oil and gas battle with Europe casting a shadow across the EU and really around the world. The Dow, the S&P 500, and NASDAQ all ended the day lower, and this is Random, but painful. The Nasdaq is now down seven sessions in a row. That is its longest losing streak in six years. It wasn't just tech. Occidental Petroleum, the hottest oil and gas stock so far this year, down nearly 3% today, still up 158% of the year. The XLE, big energy ETF, lost about 1%, still doing well. The XOP, kind of a similar story, down today. But one of the few bright spots in the entire stock market this year has been certainly oil and gas. All right. So that also remains a bright spot, as we noted, over the past year. So oil and gas, they've done well for investors. But overall, it's been one of the worst years for the stock market in, well, decades. And the energy crisis in Europe is one big part. Not the only part, but a big part of the reason. So let's stay right there and expand it out a little bit. Because one reason that Russia shut down that entire Nord Stream gas flow to Germany is that it wants those Western sanctions removed on its oil. But as we noted at the top, that is not going to happen. And in fact, the full European sanctions on Russian energy do not kick in until December 5th, when the West tries to stop nearly all flows of Russian oil by hitting the financing and insurance and shipping side of the business, making it nearly impossible to sell a shipload of Putin's crude and Russia has said if that happens, it will retaliate. Now some of that may have just been what we witnessed, but today Russia did something else. It was odd and disturbing. They released a video apparently showing a freezing Europe. Let's bring in Dan Jurgen, vice chairman of S&P Global, and Andy Lipow, president of Lipow Oil Associates. Dan, I don't know if you had a chance to see this sort of bizarre commercial. Okay, we're going to we're not going to give Putin any airtime for his sort of disgusting promotion, but we'll show a tiny clip to our audience where the gas flow goes to zero, weird music, icy winds, what looks to be ice across London and other parts of Germany. Dan, what the heck kind of message is Putin trying to send here?
3: I think the message is very clear, Brian, which is that this is an energy war, that this is the energy front in the war in Ukraine. And Putin laid out his strategy in in June, He gave a speech in which he said high prices will create uh, economic hardship, social turmoil, bring populists to power and strangely use this phrase almost as creepy as that uh, that video, which is change the elites in Europe. And what he left unsaid is uh, destroy, undermine, make it impossible. For the coalition to hold together, supporting Ukraine, and now we're down to you know the what we've just seen is basically an escalation in the energy war, and it's clearly a you know the Russians have had plenty of time to figure this out. This is a direct response to the sanctions, but to the to the notion of the price cap being put on. So this is an escalation, and I'll just tell you, you have had the German economic minister now the Finnish economics minister. Warning of, strangely enough, a Lehman-style economic collapse. So this is, this is escalation. And that, that, and that video is really creepy.
1: It, it, it is. And, and we just wanted to give a little clip of it because we didn't give it too much airtime, but we wanted to give the audience an idea of what kind of almost psychological warfare that they're doing. You know, Andy, I mean, here's the thing. And again, we've been covering this story. I've been over there a couple of times on this. And I get it. People say you're fear-mongering. Germany's going to be fine. They've been through worse. They will be fine long term. We understand that Europe has been through a lot more difficult situations, actual wars than this. That said, trillions of dollars are at risk. Entire industries and economies, Andy, are they not? Fertilizers, aluminum, zinc, things we never think about until we have to.
4: Well, it certainly is. When you think about all the energy-intensive industries, starting with the metals, whether it's aluminum, steel, zinc, or other industries such as cement and glasses, you can see everything is going to be affected, including the entire automobile industry, which depends on aluminum parts. You can think about, in France, wine bottles and wine glasses are going to be difficult to source as glass factories shut down. So there's a lot of uh, things that are happening, and Russia is looking to put Europe really into a recession. What I might add is this is going to affect China in a big way, given the immense amount of trade that's going on between China and Europe. So this can come back to hurt China as well.
1: Yeah. Dan, you literally, I would say, wrote the book, but you've actually written numerous books. Of course, the prize, your first one, uh, and the new map, which was, by the way, is just required reading for everybody. You've got to read that. So you see this thing sort of from almost an outer space point of view where you put the globe together. It feels like Russia, China, Iran, and, and to, a, to a lesser extent, India are kind of forming their own odd coalition versus the West. How does this reshape geopolitics?
3: Well, I think that I think re, we're seeing geopolitics being reshaped uh, in real time right now, because basically Russia's integration with the West is over. The door has been slammed. Putin has thrown away 22 years of economic integration, and basically Russia ends up at an economic dependency of China. Obviously, Iran. You know, they, they're comparing notes on how do you deal with sanctions, and uh, Russia's buying uh, drones right now from Iran uh, to. Uh, I think India's is sort of more in a middle situation the Indian foreign minister said you know basically said we don't have a dog in this hunt we're we're interested in food fuel uh, and fertilizer what Andy was referring to but I think uh, India's is in a quandary because it's also in this thing called the quad with the United States trying to contain China which is its rival. But on the other hand, it has a historic relationship. Yeah. And by the way, it loves buying cheap oil from Russia right That's now. That's it. That's it.
1: You know, Andy, I, I watched an interview, a CNBC interview with our colleague Hadley Gamble, with Hardeep Singh, who's the energy minister, and he tried to explain it away and say, well, we've got 1.4 billion people. We've got to think about them. We're democratically elected. And he is right. But you do have a dog in the hunt. If you're going to buy cheap oil from Vladimir Putin when the, almost the rest of of the industrialized world has said they are not going to. Don't don't India, do they have in your mind a responsibility to, to the world, to Ukraine?
4: Well, I think that India doesn't feel that way. They're looking out for their own economic self-interest and, and they're benefiting from the deeply discounted Russian oil that they're purchasing. Uh, as Daniel mentioned, I mean, India is really trying to contain china at the same time they're maintaining relations with russia and the west so from their standpoint they may think of themselves as neutral just taking advantage of the situation but ultimately they are going to be affected as well if europe goes into a recession you know india needs to export a lot of consumer goods and services you know, Dan,
1: I want to ask you a final question, because here's the thing in the interview that I found a little bit vexing. And I didn't find it vexing. I understood what he was doing. He basically said, well, the sanctions aren't working anyway, so we should buy them. But maybe the sanctions aren't working because India keeps buying now so much Russian oil. And it's, it's not just them, obviously. It's others as well. And a lot of it is getting, it, getting to Europe, right? I mean, just they're
3: transferring
1: the ship or they're claiming different ownership of it. Are the current sanctions working? on Russia
3: Well, the current sanctions right now I mean there are a lot of sanctions but oil exports are not sanctioned and one reason the US government has come up with this I- idea of a price cap is a way to keep the oil flowing to India because they don't want to have a seven million barrel a day hole in the market so it's really a tough situation and there's India which imports eighty five percent of its oil uh, that you know they they need to get it from so no what at least Washington is trying to do is prevent there being a worse crisis. But it's, you know, it's a really tough situation come, as you said, December 5th, when the ban goes into effect, including on insurance and shipping, then it gets a lot more difficult.
1: Yeah. And we'll, we'll listen. There's been people calling, Dan. I'm sure you've heard it. They're saying maybe we don't need to do the sanctions because the population, some some right winger in Italy said that today. We'll find out. Dan Jurgen and Andy Lipow, a good discussion, guys. We could have done the whole hour. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. All right, this CBC special energy emergency is just getting started. Stay with us.
0: Tonight, don't keep it on the QT. Is liquid gold offshore and ready for the taking? Plus, don't get rusty. Stay on top of your energy game with RBN's analysis and unlimited power. We go off the grid with the CEO of AEP when we return on CNBC.
5: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Visibility at Indeed.com slash MadMoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash MadMoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash MadMoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Welcome back to the CNBC special energy emergency. Now, last Monday, New England was issued a bit of a warning. The operator of New England's power grid warned that the region may be at risk of not having adequate power going forward unless regulators and policymakers accept the reality of needing natural gas in the near and perhaps even longer term. In a draft document ahead of an important forum later on this week, the grid operator known as ISO New England said, quote, For the clean energy transition to be successful, the region must continue to have reliable supplies of gas for home heating and electricity. Then they add this, quote, the current lack of a regional plan to ensure energy adequacy, including the absence of state or federal regulatory solution, endangers the reliability of the electric power system. That's quite a warning. And they even refer to what is happening in Germany as a reason to maybe make sure that we don't make the same mistakes by not having enough power. And that warning is not all New Englanders are facing. Wholesale electricity prices more than doubled in July from a year ago. Energy inflation continues to hit families across the region. And what's amazing is that all this is happening in an area that is 150 or so miles from the biggest natural gas field in America, which is not in Texas. It is the Marcellus Shale in Pennsylvania and New York. EQT is the biggest natural gas producer in America. Toby Rice is the CEO and he joins us now. Toby, I'm sure you saw that document on one hand Were you heartened by the fact that you've got the grid operator basically saying to regulators and state governors and whatever, hey, we're going to need some gas for years to come. And for goodness sakes, don't shut down the only liquefied natural gas import terminal we have. Or were you disheartened by the fact that they continue to basically say, well, the pipelines are full and we'll make the transition and there's there's not much we can do in the long term.
6: Well, you know, I think ultimately reality is going to catch up and and you're going to see this translate to policies that will ho- ultimately, hopefully bring energy security to the citizens in the United States. You know, the, the move to renewables and clean energy um, and that transition and how, bringing energy security, I think you can look at Europe and how that's played out. Uh, they really leaned into, to you know, uh, clean solar and wind, and they find themselves in probably one of the worst lurches Uh, in the in the world right now. So that is not the answer. The answer is very simple. It's let's take advantage of proven uh, fuels that can provide energy security. And that is hydrocarbons, specifically natural gas to generate cheap, clean, reliable power. And what's amazing in Boston, they have got the, the easiest opportunity. They don't need to be sourcing their gas from halfway around the world, like what Europe has to do. They can source gas Literally from their next door neighbors here in Pennsylvania, home of the biggest gas field in the world, the Marcellus Shale, currently producing over 35 BCF a day. That's over a third of the the total U.S. gas production comes from states a couple hundred miles away. Be very simple for us to put some more of those gas, some more of those pipelines over to get them hooked yep. up. It's 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 a very obvious solution. Well, and here's what
1: you know: there's going to be a lot of pushback on the pipelines. And I mean, that's if you if anybody can get that done, it'll be some sort of New England political. Miracle, Toby. I mean, but I do remember, I think it was earlier this year or late last year, that the situation got a little bit dire enough that this Everett, Massachusetts, sort of near Boston, liquefied natural gas terminal, they had to bring in a shipment of LNG from Trinidad. And nobody's knocking on Trinidad, but the concept that you're importing a shipload of LNG when, to your point, you've got this field, an American field, very close nearby just seems ludicrous
6: it's certainly bizarre i mean and, d- Sully, and dangerous yeah i mean when you think about it, here's the reality you know we're shipping we're america we're the world's largest exporter of lng and as our lng tankers are leaving the united states to head to europe they are passing lng tankers coming from other parts of the country and we're waving we're waving as we as we cross each other it's absolutely ridiculous but you know, the, the other thing that's kind of ridiculous is, you know, the fact that the New England is relying on heating oil for a large portion of their heating, of their heating. and in dire times, they turn to use that for, for electricity and power gen. And let's not forget, last winter, they were saved um, uh, by oil and at about 30 percent of their stack, of their electricity stack, was generated with oil. And we've got the biggest natural gas resource right next door. And what's remarkable is we built over 2 million miles of pipelines in this country, and we've never seemed to have an issue up until about five years ago, when all of a sudden pipeline infrastructure structures started getting canceled, blocked and opposed. And unfortunately, New England is gonna bear the brunt of this. Right now, natural gas prices are elevated, but if you look forward into the future, natural gas prices in New England are, are scheduled to be over $40 this winter. We're gonna be selling that same gas here in Appalachia for a price of $8 it's it's pretty remarkable well, what's why happening. the
1: spread why the 32 dollars spread because you know what they're going to say toby you're a rich guy you guys have share buybacks they're going to come after you and your company and others in america and say well you just you're making all this money you should be you should be adding capacity but you can't because you can't pipe it anywhere correct you've nowhere to put it
6: we're, we're out of we're out of pipeline infrastructure you know so you, you can't push a rope uphill you can't put more gas in a pipeline that's already full so if you want to alleviate this bottleneck and that is a major opportunity for, for pipeline infrastructure, we would love to build these pipelines um, and connect, connect this market with cheap, reliable, clean energy, natural gas that's produced here in America. We just need more pipeline infrastructure to do it. But yeah. it's been blocked. Over 7 BCF a day of pipelines have been blocked, canceled, and closed that would take gas from the largest gas field in the world to other yeah. parts of the United States.
1: And to your point, you got thousands, tens of hundreds of thousands of people using heating oil. And on any given day, a certain part of the New England power grid makeup, literally, Toby, will be dung and landfill gas. It's publicly available. You can look it up. Toby Rice, EQT CEO. Toby, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks. Dung. All right. On deck in this special hour, the Department of Energy recently, rather quietly, but also kind of loudly, sent a warning some big American oil and gas producers. Make sure we have enough before you sell any overseas or else. That's next.
5: Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com meetingdemand meeting demand.
0: The market doesn't joke around, so why would you get serious?
1: All right, welcome back to this special CNBC Hour. We are blessed and lucky to live in the United States. We have plenty of energy, so much so that we can sell a lot of it around the world, and we are. So far this year, the U.S. has exported more liquefied natural gas to Europe than in all of last year. U.S. crude oil exports, they reached a record 5 million barrels a day in August, mostly to Europe. Remember, we used to be a net importer of oil. Now those cargos are helping Europeans blunt the impact of Putin's aggression, but in late August, the U.S. Department of Energy sent a letter to some big oil and gas CEOs with a bit of a warning: prioritize building U.S. inventories now or risk unspecified federal emergency actions. Let's talk more about this and the export market and dig deeper with RBN Energy CEO Rusty Brazil, well known to the Mad Money and Jim Cramer family. Rusty, it's good to have you on. I'll try to do my best to, uh, to make up where Jim left off. And, I mean, we talk about the stocks, the, the Tellurians, the Cheniers, which is ticker LNG, Semper Energies of the World. But how critical is U.S. liquefied natural gas to blunting everything we're talking about Putin doing in Europe?
7: Absolutely critical, Brian. Uh, we are, as you said, exporting a lot of LNG right now. Just last week, We put 18 cargoes on the water. At least 10 of those went to Europe. Probably another four went to Europe. Uh, And we would be exporting more if we hadn't have lost one of the LNG export facilities, Freeport, about three months ago. Uh, And that already has cut about 50 cargoes out of the market.
1: By the way, do we still know really what happened at Freeport? Well, we, we know that we know that there was a fire.
7: It was a fire in the wrong place and uh, and therefore the the unit was down. But in terms of the details, I really don't know the specific details of the of, of the damage.
1: Yeah, I mean, in that freeport, that LNG Freeport's a private company here, you know, right. and it's a huge, huge company. Um, do you feel like there could be a risk to u s energy, LNG, and or oil exports? I mean, the Department of Energy, And I understand what they're doing. They're basically saying, hey, make sure we in America have enough of our own energy in winter before we ship it around the world. I can see their point of view.
7: Absolutely. Uh, But uh, but obviously. We are exporting a lot of energy right now, and if we weren't exporting that energy, what would be happening in the international markets today? Crude oil prices would be uh, would be back to the 120 bucks. Natural gas prices would be off the scale. So, effectively, because we are operating in a global marketplace, the, the, it's it, it's a necessity that we continue to export the way we are right now. Um, You know, in terms of uh, how that's going to play out with what the administration has said, you don't know. But my guess is that not much different is going to happen by the time we get into the winter season.
1: Okay, you know, there's this and I'm rubbing my eyes, Rusty, because I'm tired of the political fight. This shouldn't be a political issue, but everything's political now where you get one side saying one thing and the other side saying the other. And I understand why tens of millions of Americans are caught in the middle. Think I don't understand the energy business. I don't have any idea who's right, who's telling me the truth, or or sort of, let's say, playing a little bit fast and loose. Can you explain to our audience, in plain Texan English, whatever that is, what the difference between a lease and a permit is? Because all we hear is, oh, there's all these leases and no one's doing anything, and then the industry says, well, I got leases, but I can't permit it, so I can't build. What's the difference?
7: Well, I'm going to get to the, your specific question in a second, but... In my opinion, this is not nearly as big a deal as it's being made by either side. So, a lease means that I own a right in order to produce hydrocarbons off of a particular plot of land. Effectively, the, the under uh, the 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 resources that are underneath a particular plot of land. I have to have that lease in order to be able to produce those hydrocarbons. And I'm probably leasing uh, that from uh, a, a farmer or from the, the descendant of somebody who owned that property years and years ago. But I cannot drill the well until I have a permit to drill the well. So the permit is the permit to drill and complete. The lease gives me the right to the hydrocarbons under the ground.
1: So is there anybody that's right or are they both kind of telling the truth?
7: I think they're both kind of telling the truth. Um, the, the reality is there's a lot of things that are keeping production in the United States, basically uh, keeping a cap on yep. production in the United States. And, and that's issues like, I can't hire enough people, I've got supply chain issues on equipment, I, I've got capital restraint, that that, uh, that yep. a public company, the Wall Street, uh, wants me to pay dividends rather than drill more wells. So all of those things are contributing, and we've got this lease and yeah. permit issue that's just added up on top of it. It's, it's just—it's rhetoric,
1: it's rhetoric at, political rhetoric at its finest on both sides, by the way. I tip sides, my, I, I, I tip my, my cap. Rusty Brazil, I tip my cap to you. Thank you very much, all Rusty. All right. Your Thanks, Brad. all right. Don't go anywhere. The CBC special energy emergency will continue right after this short break.
0: Coming up. Look out for the pick of the litter. Make your energy stock picks work for you. Plus, do the electric slide. A key utility player joins us. And go clean and earn green. Alternative solutions to an energy emergency. When we return on CNBC.
1: All right, Welcome back. Let's talk about this terrible and record-breaking heat happening in California and other parts of the West. Air conditioners, they are cranking 24-7. State asking people to conserve as much as possible and to do things like not charge their electric cars to save power. All this has pushed the power grid out West to its limit. The California grid operator saying this afternoon they could see the highest demand the state has ever seen. And it is not just California. Heat in the Midwest also causing power issues this summer. So how do you make sure that if you need the air conditioning to stay on for safety or the heat to come on in winter for safety? It will. Let's drill down on the future of our power grid with Nick Aikens. He is the chairman and CEO of American Electric Power, one of the biggest power generators in the United States, if not the world. Nick, thank you for coming on the program. In the Biden bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, there's been a lot of money for clean energy, for climate. And a big part of that, as I understand it, is for infrastructure improvements. Part of the reason we have fires and power outages are 75-year-old power lines. What will that money mean for AEP and to make sure we have a reliable grid?
8: it means, yeah, certainly it'll, it'll mean a lot for the entire grid. Uh, not only the, the, uh, the fundamental bill that was done earlier relative to infrastructure, but also the IRA, um, the, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, legislation, both of those go together, really, to focus on not only resiliency of the grid, but also movement to that clean energy economy. So, if we do it in a mindful way, we're mitigating the prices for customers uh, in these periods. Because with with renewables, you can you can certainly hedge natural gas prices and those kinds of things that are rising in cost. Uh, but also with the infrastructure side, we can be mindful of how we're moving toward and what pace we're moving. Uh, toward that clean energy economy. And that means making sure we have base load generation and the resiliency in place, whether it's nuclear, whether it's even, even natural gas and coal. So we need to focus on those things as a balanced portfolio uh, going forward during this, during this time.
1: And what, what lessons, if any, because there are different regulatory schemes, but Nick, what lessons can you and the other power companies in America learn from what's happening in the UK and Europe?
8: Oh, absolutely. It's, it's around making sure we're, we're uh, using options and looking at that option value associated with different types of resources in play. You can't do everything with one single type of resource and you can't have a single point of vulnerability uh, on the grid or in terms of resources. So we have to ensure that we're building in resiliency, building in multiple resources that are available different kinds of resources, because each one of them present uh, bro- both pros and cons. And doing that can make, make, help us mitigate uh, mm-hmm. any impacts relative to not only pricing, but also resiliency associated with the grid.
1: We're, we're gonna talk about renewables and nuclear in the next segment of the show. But before we talk about the equities, Nick, I wanna ask you about running a plant. You own one, a Donald C. Cook plant in sort of Southwestern Michigan. If you decided, you and your board decided tomorrow, we're going to build a new nuclear plant. Could you get it done? And how long would it take?
8: Well, I think that's a tremendous challenge. When you're trying to build a nuclear station that size and how much capital is being deployed to associate with the construction and the construction time period, you're talking about 15 years uh, to do something like that with a lot of risk on construction and cost uh, during the interim. So. Our corporation would not make that bet. What we will do, and certainly the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, presents particular value associated with the small modular reactors. Uh, the small modular reactors provide a smaller benefit, smaller capital but also the ability to transition from fossil generation to more uh, 24-7 type of generation. So that option's available. We just have to take the time to make sure it's done right.
1: Yeah, I got to do something more on the SMRs, the small module reactors. That is a very interesting technology. But that's for another day. Nick Akits, thank you very much. Appreciate you joining us, CEO of AEP. All right, coming up, we are going to put that fossil right back in the ground. And we're going to talk about the renewables opportunity and why no one, well, almost no one, is talking about nuclear, because we will next. All right, welcome back. Here's something that you might have missed last week. It didn't exactly get a lot of attention. California did a major U-turn and said that it will keep its last nuclear plant running, Diablo Canyon, for at least another five years. Now, you may not know this, but about one-fifth Of electricity on any given day in the U.S. comes from nuclear power plants. That's as much as all other clean energy sources combined, and yet everybody seems to be talking about shutting down nuclear. Joining us now at the deeper dive on nuclear and other clean energy and renewables, Stephen Fleischman. He is senior analyst at Wolf Research. And Stephen, I know you're focused more on sort of extending nuclear. Just heard the AEP CEO say in a very, uh, you know, CEO way, we would not touch Building another plant, yeah. Germany is. <laughs> that's what he said. Germany is now talking about extension. Who would be the winners if we finally kind of got a clue about fusion?
9: Yeah. So look, the, uh, first, thanks, Brian, for having me. The uh, the winner. There's one real winner with uh, on existing nuclear, uh, well, more than anyone else, and that's Constellation Energy. CEG is the ticker. Uh, they're the largest. Owner of nuclear in the U.S., they're the best, one of the best operators, and all of their nuclear is is unregulated, and it benefits from uh, not only high gas prices that we're seeing and tight power markets, but also the uh, the new IRA bill that passed that has special treatment for existing nuclear plants.
1: When we talk about so-called clean energy, and we, you can get into the argument about is it clean because the turbines don't biodegrade or you got to dig up lithium from Australia. Forget about all that. When we talk about, quote, clean energy, do you include nuclear in that? Should be yeah, right. Think, it's, it's
9: zero emission. We think nuclear is definitely part of the clean energy transition, and it's really critical because most renewables are or all renewables are intermittent. They, they don't run. All the time, and they tend to run at the same time. So, when they're not running, uh, you need to make sure you've got other forms of power running and the core baseload power that we've had. And we're, we're shutting coal to reduce carbon. Uh, we're not adding that much gas anymore. So, nuclear is really critical as the baseload fuel that runs 95% of the time and is also carbon free. So, it's a really critical piece, particularly if we want to keep shutting more coal.
1: Yeah okay hydrogen i've got people that will tell me stephen this is the future blue green gray hydrogen clean dirty whatever hydrogen is the answer i got other people that are i respect just as much as say hydrogen is terrible it has no future it's too doggone expensive it's too dangerous whatever who's right
9: yeah the former the uh the right hydrogen is now uh and green clean hydrogen is now the most economic form of hydrogen Uh, with this new IRA law that passed with significant tax credits for green hydrogen. And so it's going to be part of the mix. It's a way to store energy, and uh, it's a way to accelerate decarbonization. Uh, It won't just be renewables, though, that make green hydrogen. The the amazing thing is that nuclear will also be part of making green hydrogen. Uh, So that's going to be the other story you're going to hear on nuclear, is it's gonna be a play on, on producing hydrogen
1: too. Yeah, and then you've got the winners like a Plug Power, Bloom Energy, some names that you, you like with those?
9: Yeah, Plug's been our favorite way to play the hydrogen story. They've got a lot of different uh, irons in the fire, uh, not just in the US, but also in Europe, and Asia, Europe, obviously having a, a tremendous energy crisis where hydrogen just is
1: economic, yeah. green hydrogen's economic today.
9: So plug is the best way to play hydrogen story.
1: Stephen Fleischman, Wolf Research, looking at nuclear, looking at hydrogen. Really appreciate
0: it. Got a little breaking news for you,
1: by the way. Hold there. We're going to get to the T's in a second, but I want to read this because we were just talking about grid systems. Well, the California ISO system just came out and basically said they're going to declare an emergency level three warning around 530 p.m. I assume that's Pacific time tonight, which means there could be rolling blackouts and brownouts throughout california so california's grid operator just moments ago or minutes ago coming out and saying be prepared from 4 to 9 p.m tonight that we could have more demand than we can make power and there could be rolling blackouts across california bad news it's been 100 degrees you need that air conditioning running unbelievable all right coming up next the good news on gas prices they have crashed in the past few months but can it last Patrick DeHaan of Gas Putty is up with that next. And stay tuned for the news with Shepard Smith beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern right here on CNBC. That's up in just seven minutes. Stick around. All right. Gasoline prices are still up sharply from this time last year. But Americans are finally seeing costs come down. In fact, they've crashed the last two months. But is OPEC slash to October production and the strategic reserve having to be refilled Going to put that in jeopardy. Let's talk about it. Joining us now is a man who follows it as closely as anybody, Patrick DeHaan, head of petroleum analysis at Gas Buddy. Hey, I'm not going to say, any, Patrick, I just drove 1,000 miles across the upper Midwest the last two days. It was nice to see gas in the low threes. Is it going to last?
10: Well, Brian, I think outside of hurricane season, of course, that's the wild card here. That and refinery outages like we saw last week, BP's refinery in Indiana went down of a electrical flyer, I think it will continue barring some of those outside factors. Uh, by the end of the year, uh, I think prices nationally could be 25 to 50 cents lower than where they are today. Of course, you may not want to take that road trip in the colder months when the snow starts flying, but prices will be lower, I think, by the end of the year.
1: Wow, that is some good news. Now, we have been blessed with the weather. We did this on my show last week, Patrick. It's been only the third time in 70 years where we did not have a named hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico or Atlantic. So we just got blessed by mother nature in a different way outside of the California heat waves. How lucky have we been in the Gulf with no outages because of storms? Well, Brian,
10: I'd like to knock on wood, though there are a couple of named storms now and a couple areas of interest. I mean, it's certainly very uncharacteristic of hurricane season to not see a named storm in August. But that also doesn't guarantee that Mother Nature is going to cooperate for September. And in the predicament we're in, prices have gone down. But that doesn't mean the coast is clear. In fact, supplies remain relatively tight. Gasoline is okay, but diesel and distillates are the tight spot. If we still see any major hurricanes venturing into the Gulf of Mexico, that could shut down refineries long enough to cause gas prices and diesel to go back up before going back down towards the end of the year.
1: What about refilling the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? It's at 40-year lows. We've been selling about a million barrels a day from it for months, and we do that all the way up through early November. There's a long-term chart we're showing our audience. I mean, this legally has to be refilled.
10: Yeah, that's right. And obviously, that's what is being mulled over by the administration. They have said that they're going to come up with a plan to allow the DOE, to fill it with a different kind of of refill plan than we've seen in in years past and situations past. I would hope that the administration is going to be buying low. Certainly, they've sold at the top of the market. But that's the biggest question. Does the SPR refill change the market from a bearish one in recent weeks to a bullish one? There certainly is that possibility. I think the administration is really going to have to nail it to be able to pull this off. Obviously 180 million barrels of refill is a pretty steep order, especially now given that OPEC is starting to cut production.
1: Are we seeing $2 gas? I mean, not two bucks, but like $280 anywhere in America, $295. We have two handles somewhere. We are. In fact, 18
10: states, no one's average is yet below that. So I want to make that distinction. But 18 states yeah. have at least one station under that $3 gallon mark, Brian. Wow. In fact, I just checked this afternoon, two yep. stations in Iowa. $2.59 a gallon for gasoline.
1: There you go. You go, Iowa. Thank you very much. <laughs> Patrick Dehan of Gas Buddy. appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. And that does it for us here. The news with Shepard Smith starts right now. Thanks for watching.
5: Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.